We are looking at Exodus 18, verses 1 through 27. Exodus 18, 1 through 27. I'll just say this by way of preface. There are those chapters in the Bible that seem less exciting than other chapters. And you may have a tendency to just want to skip over them, but oftentimes it's those chapters that serve very specific and important roles in the life of a church. And this is one of those such chapters for us tonight. We're looking at Exodus 18, beginning in verse 1. Moses, I'll just remind you, has brought Israel into the wilderness. Israel has grumbled. God has miraculously provided for them water, bread from heaven, quail, water from a rock. And then they have faced the first external enemies without when the Amalekites came and attacked them from behind. And you'll remember if you were here uh, last Lord's Day evening that Moses lifts up his hand and the rod of God. And whenever he is lifting up his hands to God, as it were, interceding for the people, God brings victory for the people. And whenever his hands grew weak and tired, he needed Joshua and her to lift up his hands And whenever his hands were lifted again, God would win the battle for his people. And now we come to a transitional segment between Israel's defeat of Amalek and Moses going and getting the Ten Commandments, which we're going to see in subsequent Lord's Day evenings. We're looking tonight at Exodus 18, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses writes, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, and he uses the covenant name Yahweh, Jehovah, is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from the morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. 
When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able, able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, and hundreds and fifties and of tens, and they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in his little book on the life of Moses, um, the late Pastor James Montgomery Boyce, uh, noting what is going on in this chapter and everything that's happening in the life of Moses at this point in his role as the Old Covenant mediator, he wrote this. He said, when I find a good title, I always remember it. He said, there is a movie with the title, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Boyce says this particular chapter of Exodus shows us the loneliness of the long-distance leader, especially a Christian leader, because in Christian circles, leadership is a commitment for the long haul. He says a leader walks alone. His task is to set a vision, to plan and motivate, and by the very nature of the task, he must do this more or less by himself or with a team, not with the support of the masses. His vision must be communicated. It is not initially shared. Plans are often misunderstood. Motivators are resisted. Yet the leader must carry on. Now, you get a sense when you come to this section. Here is Moses, and he is with at least one million, if not close to two million Israelites in the wilderness. And I'll just say this tonight. Everybody wants a megachurch until you're Moses with two million grumbling and complaining Israelites in the wilderness. And yet God had equipped and called Moses. God had prepared Moses. God had set Moses apart. God had used Moses in powerful ways. He had gifted Moses. He had supplied Moses with the help of Aaron. But now as Israel has grown and Moses has brought them into the, to the wilderness, Moses feels the challenges of leadership alone. He feels that he can't do it all. He, he feels the burden of staying up from morning till evening, dealing with all the cases of the people, judging all of the difficult cases, whether it would have been one herdsman in Israel complaining that another herdsman was using up all the resources that he needed or whether it was fighting 
with spouses. I may have told you this. I have a friend who jokingly used to say to me, I think if there's such a thing as purgatory, it's going to be marriage counseling with the same couple forever. (laughs) Just coming back constantly. He said, not you again. And Moses would have felt that in the middle of that sun-parched, hot, barren desert. And yet there are provisions for Moses. And we're going to see in this chapter that God provides wise counsel through an unlikely source, through Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now, I want us to consider just two things tonight as we look at this together. There's a number of ways we can structure this. The first, we could consider the salvation of a Gentile, and then secondly, taking heed to wise counsel. Or we could look at this under the, the two headings, the role of evangelism in the Old Testament and the role of church government in the Old Testament. No matter how we slice that, we're going to end up in the same places. And so I want us to consider, first of all, the interaction between Moses and Jethro. Now, we have not heard about Moses's family since chapter four. It has been a long time since we heard about it. Remember, when Moses first fled from Egypt, he ended up in Midian. And remember, he defended some of the daughters of Jethro against some wicked and ruthless shepherds who wanted to block them from getting the water and the resource they needed. And Moses rose to the occasion, and Jethro found him in good favor and and blessed him, even to the point of allowing Moses to marry Zipporah, one of his daughters. And then you'll remember that God raised up children to Moses and Zipporah, and Moses will name one of those children Gershom, which has a very rich biblical theological meaning, which means I am a pilgrim here. This is not my home. I am merely passing through pilgrim there or stranger there. What we don't know is exactly when Moses sent his family away. We know that sometime between the Exodus and now, Moses had sent Zipporah and their two sons back to Jethro for safekeeping. Um, I imagine, and it's probably a good, reasonable guess, that he did this before the Exodus, that he didn't want his wife and children to have to experience what could potentially be a very difficult departure. And so before Moses went back, and remember Moses had gone to Jethro to ask for his blessing, and Jethro had given that blessing, and probably at that time and that period in which Moses is just sewing up relations with his family, he sent Zipporah and the the sons back to Jethro. And now for the first time since the Exodus, we read about this family reunion. Now it's interesting that what we're told is that Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses's father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel as people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, and he had taken his wife, and Jethro came, verse 5, he came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, what's interesting is that Jethro takes the initiative in this family reunion. And what is driving Jethro is that he has heard the gospel. Now, you have to listen very carefully. We have said several occasions 
The Exodus is the typical gospel in the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus likens his death and his resurrection to an Exodus in Luke 9.31 when he's on the transfiguration. And Moses and Elijah come back and they speak literally in Greek of his exodon, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. We have seen that Jesus is the greater Moses, that Moses is merely a type of Jesus, that Jesus leads his people out of bondage through his death and resurrection, out of bondage from Satan, sin, and death, and that he is the Passover lamb that secures that exodus by which God's judgment doesn't fall on the people, and he is the firstborn son we have seen that just as that tenth plague initiated the departure of Israel from Egypt, so God's firstborn dies in the place of us who are now, by God's grace, the firstborn sons and daughters of God by union with Jesus. And so the Exodus is entirely a gospel picture. And so what Jethro has heard is the gospel. He's heard what the Lord has done. He's heard of all that God has done for Israel in bringing them out of Egypt. He has heard, he has heard how the Lord has blessed them, how the Lord has been a help to them. Now, notice that he sends word to Moses in verse 6, and he says, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming with you and your wife and your two sons. Moses goes down to meet him. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh. Now, what's happening is Jethro has heard the rumblings of the gospel. And now Moses has come and he has evangelized his father-in-law. He has brought the gospel in full, clear terms to his father-in-law. Now, that's important because up until this point, Jethro is the pagan priest of Midian. He worships other gods. Now, just so you know, if you've forgotten, Midian was one of the sons of Abraham through Keturah, his wife after Sarah died. And so the Midianites would have had some true semblance of true religion, but it would have been mixed and perverted over time, and it would have ended up just like all the other pagan religions. And so at this point, there's no reason to think that Jethro was a believer. Even though Moses had spent time with him, had probably told him all about the God of Israel, had told him when he asked if he could go back to Egypt and see how his people are going, he had shared things about what Yahweh, the God of Israel, was going to do. And yet, at this point, we, we can conclude that uh, Jethro is still an unbeliever and that what God is doing is he is using Moses to bring his father-in-law to saving faith in Christ. Now, this is also important. Jethro becomes the first recorded Gentile convert in Scripture. And that's significant because, remember, God had said to Noah about his three sons that Japheth, who was the father of many of the Gentiles, was going to dwell in the tents of Shem, from whom the Jews came. That was a prediction that God, all the way back in the days of Noah, was saying, I am going to save Jews and Gentiles. I am going to bring them together in one people. My plan from all eternity is not just to save Jews, 
but to save a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. So when God comes to enter into covenant with Abraham, from whom the Israelites come, he says, I am going to make you a father of many nations. That promise of the inclusion of the Gentiles was there at the very inception of redemptive history. In fact, we could go back further and say that when God tells Adam and Eve that he is going to send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, He has envisioned in the seed of the woman who is Christ, all of the elect that he chose in Christ, everybody for whom Christ would die from all the nations on the face of the earth. And so this is important because before God is going to give the law to Israel, he is going to show his redeeming purposes extend beyond Israel, even to the Gentiles, and that he is going to use his people to carry the gospel even to the nations. Isn't that marvelous? And this just one brief little encounter. God is essentially showing us his plan was always to use his people to carry the gospel to pagans, to the heathen nation, to people who had never heard, to people that God was eager to gather into his fold. Now we have every reason to believe that Jethro believes the gospel. Notice verse 10, no sooner has, I'm sorry, go back to verse 9, no sooner has Moses told him everything that God has done. Notice verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord, Yahweh, had done to Israel and all that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then notice verse 10, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Here is a man who has heard the gospel, who has rejoiced, and who has then praised God. Isn't that interesting? He has received the message of the gospel. He has rejoiced in the message of the gospel. And now he has blessed God, praised God, and ultimately he will come to worship God together with Moses and Aaron, sacrificing to God, acknowledging his need for the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Now, that's important because many people divide the Bible into two books and they say, well, God has two people, two plans of salvation. The Old Testament and the New Testament are entirely different. But here, at the very beginning of the wilderness wanderings, we see that God's evangelistic purpose for the nations was already set and was already in motion, even in this interaction between Moses and his father-in-law. Just as an aside, I think there's a principle that we can take away that our evangelism ought to begin with those in our families. Um, I often have prayed, and I learned this from my dad for the salvation of the aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents, because God wants us to be instruments of his grace in carrying the gospel first and foremost to those that he has bound us to. It doesn't mean that they're all going to be saved, but he has purposed of all the people on the face of the earth to knit us together with these people, and he wants to use you as an instrument of carrying the gospel to unbelieving family members. You know, it was my sister who called me a week before I was converted and told me mom and dad and I are going to keep preaching the gospel to you until you repent or perish. That is a very powerful thing. Many families shy away from that. Don't shy away from that. You never know how the living God is going to use you in the lives of your children, 
your siblings, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, even, dare I say, your in-laws. Because here, Moses is being used in the life of his father-in-law. Now, no sooner do we see the salvation of this Gentile and God's grace coming to him, that we see God using him in bringing wise counsel about church government to Moses. Now, the remainder of the chapter, beginning in verse 13 down to verse 27, is going to touch on what we might say the institution of the plurality of leaders in the government of the church, even in the Old Testament. Again, I noted that so many people divide the Bible and they say, well, that was the Old Testament, this is the New Testament. The same principles are at work already in the Old Covenant, already here as early as Genesis and Exodus, as we find in the pages of the New Testament. Um, I remember in seminary somebody saying, where were the first elders and deacons? And people would point to Acts, and they would point to Timothy, they would point to Titus. And I had a professor said, no, it's here. There are already elders in Israel. The elders come. Notice the end of verse 12. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And Jethro witnessed something. He saw that Moses was worn out. He saw that he was exhausting himself. And he saw that it was not a good long-term position for Moses to be in, rising up early, staying up late, dealing with all of the cases of all the people. And it wasn't good for the people. Notice what Jethro says. Notice the end of verse 14. What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning and evening? And he'll go on to say, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out because Moses was sitting there giving himself constantly to all the needs of this massive congregation in the wilderness. And the people were standing in the blazing heat all day long waiting to see Moses. And it was a really bad situation. And Jethro was wise enough to say to Moses, listen, here's what you've got to do. You've got to, first of all, notice, he says, verse 16, when the people have a dispute, Moses says, they come to me. Verse 17, Jethro says, what you're doing is not good. Verse 19, now obey my voice. I'll give you advice and God be with you. Notice this, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look out for able men from among the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bride, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Now, very interesting, the very first thing, the very first thing that Jethro starts with, and it's a very God-centered counsel. He starts with God. He says, you represent the people before God, and you give the people all the statutes and the laws of God. And then secondly, he will say, seek out wise men from among yourselves, men who fear God, men who don't take bribes, men who have godly character, wisdom, gifts, who are able and put them over respective groups of people. Now, what 
Jethro is essentially giving Moses, and I'm saying this sort of tongue-in-cheek, is principles of Presbyterianism. This is Presbyterianism at work. Um, that is not forced on the text. He is telling him that, that leaders don't get to just make up whatever they want to make up. This is God's church. He recognizes these are God's people. He says to Moses, you represent the people before God. And then he doesn't say, and you make up what's going to be good for the people and come up with really sophisticated plans for church growth because that's what the people need. He says, no, you teach them the statutes and the laws of God. Now, up till this point, God had not given his law in codified form to Moses. But what we can conclude is that by oral tradition, God had passed all of his word down from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, through further revelation from Abraham, now all the way to Moses. And Jethro is acknowledging that God has revealed himself and his will to Moses. And Jethro is acknowledging that the only thing that matters for the people of God is what God has said matters for them. So before he ever gives him counsel, about the people. He says, this is what you're to do. You are to go at this in a God-honoring way. And he is recognizing that God is the head of his church, even as we acknowledge that Christ is the only king and head of his church. Um, You know, he's going to get to the needs of the people, but I don't want you to miss that point. That is something that so many churches never get. Or they get it in sort of piecemeal. Or they compromise that. Leaders in the church don't get to make up rules and regulations. We don't get to bind people's consciences with anything other than what God has said. And the church doesn't get to be governed and led by any other authority than what God has breathed out in his word. And I'll tell you how important this is. It's so important that the entire history of the New Testament is a battle to preserve that principle against all the perversions of false teaching. Because as Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 15, when we look at the the Pharisees and the scribes, he says that, that you lay aside the command of God and you bind people's consciences with man-made laws and commandments. You see, The first principle, if we can say, of Presbyterianism, the first principle of the church, is that God's word and only God's word is to govern all the life of his people. Um, You know, this is something we have to fight for. It's not something that we hold on to easily. It's something, in fact, church history teases out that is lost very easily because we are all very prone to allowing our consciences to be bound by things other than God's word and his authority and the revelation that he gives us in scripture. And so this principle that that Jephthah is giving Moses is a vital principle for the life of the church and for the well-being of the church and for the continuance of the church. But Jephthah, as we've already noted, is seeing here that there is too much need for one man to take on by himself. Phil Riken puts it this way. Listen to this. He says, it is unwise to think that we can always handle more and more ministry. This is harmful to us, and in the end, it will also be harmful to others. This was a significant part of Jethro's concern. 
Moses wasn't the only one who was getting tired. The people were getting tired, too. Since Moses was the only judge, the people had to wait all day to get his attention. There was always a long line of people waiting to see him. And so he says to Moses, here's what you're to do. You're to look for qualified men who can share the burden, who can distribute the needs and can meet the needs of the people by way of parity of leadership. Now, he doesn't say, here's what you need to do, Moses. Just get any able-bodied, warm-bodied man and make him a leader. He also doesn't say, find all the really good agricultural businessmen and make them leaders. He also doesn't say, find the nicest men in Israel and make them leaders. He also doesn't say, find the most articulate men in Israel and make them leaders. He gives his advice, is very careful and very specific. Notice, he says, now obey my voice and I'll give you advice. Look in verse 21. He says, look for able men from all the people. The first thing he says is, find men who have the gifts and abilities to discern between good and evil and to to, uh, differentiate between the difficult cases that God's people have. Find men that are able to communicate God's word clearly and accurately to the people. Find men who know how to apply God's word carefully and rightly, gently and wisely to the people. That word able is very pregnant. Find men that God has gifted who have the ability to step in and help you bear the burdens. And then notice, he goes on and he says, notice this, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God. Now, in one sense, next to gifting is godliness. He's saying, look for gifted men, look for godly men. Because if you have gifted men without godly men, the church is going to suffer. And if you have godly men who don't have gifts, the church is going to suffer. Sometimes well-meaning people will say things like, it doesn't matter if a man has gifts, if he's not godly, the church will suffer, but they don't say the converse. It also doesn't matter how godly a man is, if he doesn't have the gift set and he's put in a position of leadership, the church will suffer. There is, there is sort of a twofold ditch that the church has to avoid. Um, sometimes it happens in certain ecclesiastical circles Well-meaning people think, well, if you're a good Christian, you'll go to church Sunday morning and evening. And if you're a really good Christian, you'll be an elder. That is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that God has appointed certain men and gifted certain men. He has given them gifts and he has given them godliness. And you need both of those things. Um, Notice that, notice that, As Jethro goes on, he says, men who fear God, notice this now, who are trustworthy. Now, what is he saying? He's saying you could have men that have gifts. You could have men that fear God, but they're going to let you down. You've got to find men that aren't going to let you down. You've got to find men that are going to be committed, that are going to pour themselves out. The Proverbs say, who can find a faithful man? They're actually rather rare. Jethro understands you need not only giftedness, not only godliness, you need trustworthiness, faithfulness, committedness. And then notice what he says. He says, trustworthy and hate a bribe. Now, a number of years ago, I went through the scriptures and I wrote an article 
about not taking bribes because nobody writes about not taking bribes. And yet the Bible is full of teaching about men and women who will pervert justice when they get their hands painted green. And and what God is saying all the way here through Jethro is that the importance of leaders is that they are not money-loving and they are not swayed by bribery. They They are not swayed to pervert justice by somebody giving them some kind of privilege. Um, If it wasn't as prevalent as it is in the world, the Bible wouldn't talk about it as much as it does. And Jethro had been around the corner enough as a religious leader to know that people are apt to take bribes and pervert justice. And so he says, look for men that are able, look for men that are God-fearing, look for men that are trustworthy, look for men that don't take bribes, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Now, I think there may be an implicit acknowledgement here that God gifts different individuals to be able to handle different spheres of responsibility. That God may gift certain men to be able to govern a thousand, And God may gift another man to only be able to handle 10. My best friend always says most of us are not even 10 men people, if we're honest with ourselves. (laughs) We have a hard time handling one or two. God gifts different men in different ways, and the church needs wisdom to be able to identify not only the characteristics, but the God-given ability a man has to handle greater or less spheres of responsibility and greater or less difficult cases. That's the next thing that Jethro is going to say to Moses. You handle the really big cases. Let them handle the smaller cases. Um, You know, I want to apply this to every ministry situation. We've been talking a lot about leadership and how vital that is in the church. But, But on the other hand, you can take this principle and apply it to every single person in the church. Because when the Apostle Paul comes to talk about the church in Ephesians 4, he uses that illustration. He's the only one that uses it. It's one of his favorite analogies. He likens the church to a body, and he says every member plays its part. And that means that when we move from eldership and Presbyterianism, if we could say that, down to every member ministry— We can acknowledge that there is always need in every ministry situation and that all of God's people need to be equipped and motivated, strategically placed and encouraged to use their gifts in the service of the body. Um, Just as if Moses had continued as the only one doing everything, he would have worn himself out and he would have worn the people out. Um, Phil Riken again says this. People never run out of needs. So when we take on the responsibility to help meet those needs, we will have as much work as we can handle. Don't miss that. People never run out of needs. So when we take on the responsibility of meeting those needs, we will have as much as we can handle. The problem comes when we try to carry burdens that are bigger than the ones that God has actually called us to bear. 
God never intends for us to do all the work ourselves. This is why he has placed us in the body of Christ, in which we are dependent on the help of others. It is utter folly for ministers or other spiritual leaders to think they can do it by themselves. Christian ministry should never be a one-man or one-woman show. It is not good for us to try to do all God's work all on our own. Um, If I can kind of step out of my normal preaching application tonight and talk to us as a, for which I'm very grateful, growing congregation, there are more than enough needs to serve at Church Creek, and there are never enough hands. And that means even if you didn't hear all the other things I said tonight, I want to encourage you to be praying about where God would have you serve and how you can plug in and how we can work together to meet those needs. Because if we don't do that, I will suffer, the few elders we have and deacons will have, and you will suffer. This is a vital point. There has never been a healthily growing church in which the people of God are not integrated into diligent service in the church. I really want to challenge you tonight as your pastor that you would pray together as couples, that you would pray as individuals, that we would pray as a church, that every person in this church would recognize ways that God has gifted you and ways that you can jump in and you can serve. Because I believe that we are going to continue growing, and as we do, we need each one of you just like you need the elders and deacons, and just like we need more elders and deacons to step in and meet those needs. I want to read to you again what Riken said just briefly. He said, people never run out of needs. People in the church never run out of needs. When we take on the responsibility to help those needs, we will have as much work as we can handle. And by the way, I've thought about this many times over the last 20 years, and in Galatians, in that applicatory section of Galatians where Paul is giving kind of some sort of bullet applications of Christian living, he says, at one point he says, let us not grow weary in doing good. And I've often wondered if Paul didn't see something in the Galatians where he saw that they were just quitting serving And that they had a propensity to grow weary in doing good. And so his application to them was, let us not grow weary in doing good. Now, that doesn't mean all the burden falls on you. It means collectively, as leaders lead, as God raises up wise men to help, as you all play your part, the church grows and thrives. The needs are met. And they'll never be met fully. There's always going to be more than you can handle. But as we encourage one another in those ways, the church grows and thrives. The people grow. Needs are met. And you know what starts to happen? The church starts to function together like a body. And it doesn't just become one person preaching. And it doesn't just become one really zealous congregant serving. But every member plays their part. Leaders lead. The members serve. And God is praised. Um, Moses does what Jethro tells him to do. Very interesting. Moses could have said to him, hold on, I've got two million people. You have like 50. 
but he listens to him. He listens to the wise counsel. He does what his father-in-law says, and he has the people, we read this in Deuteronomy 1, he has the people pick out for themselves these leaders. They appoint these leaders and place them over the people, and you know what you never hear? You never hear again that they didn't have enough leaders helping out to bear the burdens. Isn't that interesting? When we heed God's counsel, God's wisdom, God's call for all of us to do our part, you will never hear people complaining. This isn't done, and that's not done, and I wish we had that because everybody's doing their part. I hope that you'll be encouraged as we move together as the body of Christ. And as you pray through ways that you can serve and you pray for us to have the leaders that we need, the right leaders in the right positions, that we will rejoice to see what God does in this church, in this place, at this time. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we bless you for this portion of Scripture. And though we might pass over a... passage like this, we thank you that you have made it so pregnant with divine wisdom. We thank you, our God, that you have not given your church just one man other than the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you call a plurality of elders and deacons. We thank you that you gift your people, that you call us to move together as a body to build each other up in love. And we pray that that would be true at Church Creek. Father in heaven, would you raise up for us wise, understanding, godly, trustworthy, and self-sacrificial men for leadership roles as elders and deacons. We pray that you would equip your saints in the congregation to zealously pour themselves out in teaching and serving in mercy and hospitality, evangelism and prayer. And we pray, our God, that we would see your blessings resting on this congregation. We thank you and praise you for it, and we praise you in advance as we anticipate your goodness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.